Welcome back to Second Look. Today's podcast episode is the latest in the Equipping the Saints series. Today we'll hear from Pastor Josh Preston as he interviews former senior pastor and current interim president of the Gospel Coalition, Sandy Wilson, on the topic of civility within political discussions. Listen in for a conversation about how to engage in public life in gracious and redemptive ways. Hi, and welcome to another episode of uh, Equipping the Saints. My name is Josh Preston. I'm an assistant pastor at Second. And I have the great privilege of being joined by Sandy Wilson, our former senior pastor uh, and the interim president of the Gospel Coalition with us here today. Thanks for joining us. I I didn't have the privilege of our ministries at Second overlapping, but uh, on a regular basis, I'll be talking with people and they will mention something that you said or taught them that has been impactful for their lives. So your ministry is still very much bearing fruit uh, in our church. And thank you for coming to show some more of that today. Thanks, Josh. Well, I can assure you, I learned a whole lot more from them than they learned from me. (laughs) (laughs) Funny how it works that way, isn't it? Um, One of the things that we've been talking to, just to give you some context here, is um, especially last episode, is we got into this idea of the weightier matters of the law, that is justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And as we begin a new uh, election cycle that I know we're all very much looking forward to, uh, what we talked about last time was using those from God's Word, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, as kind of these centering concepts and ideas to keep us focused on what God would have us believe about the various ethical issues that will uh, come to the forefront of our public discourse over the next year. And so we talked a little bit about uh, how, to, how to apply those to various issues, and we've been uh, producing some articles, just giving you some examples of, of how that might look. And so even as we do that, after we have looked at Scripture and looked at these ethical issues and formulated what would God have me believe, what would He have me do, what would He have me think about this issue, we then need to take the next step which is to be able to engage with other people in a gracious and uh, redemptive way around those issues. Uh, And that's really the more challenging part, I think. And so um, we need the ability to do that both within the church with our brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, to maintain unity in the church, which is uh, Scripture puts a premium on, We also need to be able to do that uh, with people outside of the church who don't know Jesus to give a good witness. And and those are the two primary things I'd like to talk about uh, today. Uh, It's very challenging. And and as you alluded to yesterday when you spoke to the men at Amen Bible Study, uh, we failed in some respects with regard to this. Either we have engaged in in these topics and we've we've gotten burned because we've had these negative experiences uh, or we've pulled away altogether uh, which is uh, as you alluded to kind of a reductionist way of looking at the Christian life life because we're called to be salt and light and so uh, I guess my first question for you Sandy is is kind of two parts Uh, one what do you see as some of the issues that are taking place around our ability to engage in gracious and redemptive ways 
and, and what would you say are some of the contributing factors to those issues? Well, uh, we've got a big problem because we're to be salt and light. That is, we're to be engaged in secular politics and we're to act like Jesus. <laughs> That's the problem. <laughs> so uh, the problem is that the environment has become increasingly difficult for Christians to feel like they're functionally making a difference. I hear people say now quite frequently, you know, the times have changed and we've got to change our strategies from being mild and meek and humble and gentle and kind to being much more direct and forward. And anyone who knows my personality, that's right up my alley. <laughs> but, but it's not up the alley of following Jesus Christ. So we have to remember what the big game is. And the big game is not for your political party to win the election or even for our country to be solid and healthy and well-defended. The big game is the kingdom of God and it's making disciples. So the, the task for Christians is to be sure our focus uh, is always on the kingdom. And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. But as you have well stated, that doesn't mean that we remove ourselves from the world. And the reason we don't is because we love our neighbor as ourselves. That's the commandment. So that means trying to promote the general welfare of our country. So government has several functions. One is to promote general welfare, certainly to protect ourselves from outside forces and to bring order uh, out of chaos You know, with this 330 million people. So those are big tasks. So if we're interested in the general welfare of our neighbor, then we will seek to elect good people to office. We'll seek to promote public policies that advance the general welfare of this country. And that requires a lot out of us. And the environment has become so toxic, not just in Washington, but at Poplar and Goodlett, I mean churches, where we have made our primary identity our political identity rather than our identity in Christ. And when you do that, now you've adopted another god. It has become an idol. Our politics have become an idol. And what we found in the larger culture, Josh, as you know, is this increasing separation between red and blue, between Democrat and Republican. And studies are showing that we are becoming increasingly segregated. There is about 15% of the American population that is now actively promoting a, a civil split between red and blue states. Uh, I mean, seriously discussing this. I mean, I, I've never heard that in my lifetime. I mean, since the Civil War, we hadn't heard that being seriously discussed. And the reason is there is increasing hostility and contempt for people of opposing political viewpoints in the culture. And the numbers are quite startling, but you're getting up around 20% of the population uh, of Republicans who think we'd be better off if some Democrats would die and vice versa. Uh, we've not been in this place before. So that kind of thing is making it more difficult. When you segregate yourself from people who disagree with you, the natural tendency sociologists are showing us is that you become more extremist 
in your views. So seeing what happens with CSNBC or, or, uh, or with CNN on one hand, the left-hand side of the political spectrum, or watching what happens with people who watch only Fox on the right-hand side of the spectrum, you can see how their views have become more extremist than 30 years ago. And it's because they're only associating with and listening to people who agree with them. So the challenge for Christians who claim to be thoughtful and reasonable and godly and biblical is extremely challenging because what happens is if you really take that tact of being distinctively Christian, neither the Republicans nor the Democrats are going to like you very much because you're going to end up criticizing both of them. You're going to be critical of, of both parties, both of which have a lot in them that is contrary to good biblical conduct and thinking. So that's the challenge, is that, uh, I mean, we're not being burned at the stake, so let's not complain too much. Uh, you know, we're still in a very, you know, the freest country in the, in the world and uh, the most prosperous country in the world. So we really don't have a right to complain very much. However, everything's relative. And so it's gotten more difficult than it was. And when it gets more difficult, we get more frightened and more angry. And when you're frightened or angry, psychologists have shown us clearly, you don't think well. So we've allowed ourselves to get frightened and to get angry, and we're not thinking very well. Christians need to leave a clear testimony that we're reasonable people, that we believe in truth of all sorts on all issues. So it's just become more difficult. And I, you know, I'm sorry for the church, and yet I also want to speak to the church and say, you know, we need to repent. And you know, one way to repent, frankly, is to make friends with people who disagree with you. <laughs> Spend some time with them. Ask them a few questions. See if you can understand not only what they believe and what they don't believe. See if you can understand why they believe it. And if you can quote back to them, what they believe and why they believe it, and then say, did I get that right? Okay, now you're moving toward real understanding. And then when you have a view that disagrees with them, it'll be much more finely tuned and fair. Instead of making these grand overstatements that are unfair uh, from one party to the other, which is what you get on our propagandist TV, which with both Fox and CNN, they're both propagandists. They're not news channels. They're, they're propagandists. And you have to recognize that. Now, propagandists can be very useful, and you can learn a lot from propagandists. So I listen to both CNN and Fox. I don't believe either one of them uh, totally. And you have to cherry pick between them to try to figure out what is the truth here. So Christians are going to have to dig a little deeper to get uh, real honest, um, uh, reasonable news and news analysis. And if you only go with one of those channels, you're not. You're not doing that. That's the big challenge. Yeah. So when, when we are not doing a good job, one, of disagree, disagreeing charitably and, and redemptively within the church and with those outside of the church, how does that affect our ability to do the ministry of the church and to be faithful to what God has called us to as Christians. Well, it has enormous effect, negative effects. Uh, 
And you can see it on a global scale for how the word evangelical now means a political movement. It means political viewpoints. Mm. And the reason is those of us who call ourselves evangelicals have been talking a whole lot more about our public policy positions than we have about following Jesus. So, you know, it would be quite natural, I think. Plus, uh, for the outside world to look at us this way and then, therefore, to dismiss us as a religious movement because all we're interested in is our little family and people like us and protecting our best interests and making making the school system good for our kids the way we see it. And so we're, we're viewed that way. Now, of course, the, the media loves to caricature us that way mm-hmm. because then they can dismiss our religious claims, the claims of Jesus Christ upon every human being. So it's having a, a tremendous effect negatively. And then I would say, secondly, even within the political realm, if we want to be salt and light and have influence on public policy, which we, of course, want to do, <laughs> you're, you know... It, uh, the way that we speak so stridently and fearfully and angrily only influences people who already agree with us and makes them more fearful, more angry. We're not persuading the people with whom we disagree. If you want to persuade them, they have to see you as a voice of reason. They have to know that you're listening to them. Mm-hmm. They have to really know that you actually love them. And I'm afraid we've not been doing a really good job of demonstrating that to the outside world. So then that undermines our big agenda, which is making disciples of Jesus Christ. So uh, we've, we've talked a little bit about the bad news, <laughs> uh, the challenges and, and kind of where we've gotten off track. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, what we have that's unique as Christians that enables us to to repent, like you said, and, and get back on the right track. We had a guest preacher a couple of years ago, and uh, he mentioned he was preaching uh, from the text in Ephesians where Paul writes, uh, Now to him who is able to do far more measurably than all we ask or think. Um, and he said, you know, we typically pull that verse out at capital campaign time or when somebody we don't think could ever become a Christian or our favorite football team. <laughs> I mean, if you're a Vanderbilt fan, you've got to believe that God can do the impossible. I mean, but to go to any game, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> but he was helpful to point out that that verse actually comes right on the heels of Paul's whole exposition of uh, breaking down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile and, and Jesus himself being our peace. Uh, I bring that up. Um, it was encouraging to me because that does feel like an insurmountable task of Vanderbilt being in Alabama, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, so my question for you then is, what unique resources does the gospel, the Christian faith offer to us that enables us, despite all these challenges, to still engage graciously and redemptively? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. Uh, and. I have to say, as Christians, we're in far worse shape than Vanderbilt versus Alabama. Uh, we're actually helpless, hopeless, dead, and can't do anything good apart from Jesus Christ. We have to remember that. We're, we, we have nothing, nothing in my hands I bring simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, flee to thee for grace. 
foul. I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Now there's the testimony of a real Christian. So we enter politics that way. That I, 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 you know, there's a difference between being engaged and being obsessed. And there's a difference between contributing and controlling. And you cannot control these outcomes, but you can contribute. So the general perspective that a Christian has on human life is probably the most precious thing we have. We're made in His image. He's provided atonement for us. We're forgiven our sins. We know where we're going, and we belong there already, and that's our citizenship. My passport is a heaven passport you know, that I carry. And so my relationship to America, which I love, is a secondary love. It's a derived love from my love for the new heavens and the new earth, which is where I'm headed. So I just want to be the best citizen I can and help my fellow Americans along the way and hope they become citizens of the enduring country, uh, which is the, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. That perspective helps us. It helps us tone things down. These are secondary issues. They're not primary issues. So that's number one. We know where we're going, where we belong, and whose we are, and what country is the only one that's perfect, and that's the one that Christ rules over. Secondly, we're given a pattern. And we've got a Savior who taught us everything we need to know. And he was before Pilate, facing the worst injustice in the history of the human race. And he didn't say a word. And Pilate was stunned. And he said, don't you know I have power to to destroy you? Virtually, he was saying this to Jesus, don't you want to defend yourself? And really, all that Jesus said was, my kingdom is not of this world. Hmm. Jesus came to accomplish big results for his kingdom. And he did accomplish that. And he died on Calvary's tree. Now, of course, that wasn't the end of the story. So I think we, we have to realize that that's our model. So uh, let, let's go die together. Let's give ourselves out of love for our neighbor. You know, the Muslim takes the head off of his enemies. Christians, we have our heads taken off in an attempt to love uh, our enemies. So that's the framework. And then the diplomacy of the Apostle Paul, when he's before Herod Agrippa, just read Acts 26 with this question in mind. How was Paul showing respect for governing authorities while disagreeing with them? completely. And you see a model there in the apostle of dignity, respect for human institutions, even though they're unjust. It's absolutely astonishing how he conducted himself. And he's before, he's before purple and red, all the officials of the kingdom, and he's in his prison garb, in chains, pleading his case. But do you see a disrespectful word? Not one. So our model is clear and compelling, and we've got to recapture it. So we, we tell truth, we, we speak truth to power, but we do it respectfully. Not like uh, some organizations or disorganized organizations who, who, who all they want to do is just to destroy what is. That's, that's not the answer. Uh, so... Then I would say, uh, lastly, in terms of our equipment, we've got 
so many principles given to us by the Lord in His Word about things that affect politics. I mean, for one thing, we're to be engaged. That's really clear in the Bible. It's clear in the Bible that our first loyalty is not to government, but to the Lord Himself. So we understand submission in the Lord, but we do submit. We understand that really, and our founders knew this, you can't have a country, a nation, that's going to provide freedom unless the people are pursuing virtue. I mean, Franklin, you know, the deist said it, that it requires a virtuous people to have real freedom. And, you know, the majority of our signers of the, of the Declaration of Independence were, were believers. Not all of them, but probably the majority were. And John Adams said it clearly, that, that our government is grounded, he said, in reason, morality, and get this, the Christian religion. Now, he was not a Christian nationalist like some today, but he recognized that informally, behind our governing structures, which were accessible both to the children of the Enlightenment and evangelicals, our government was ingeniously put together as a partnership of Enlightenment and, and Christian uh, faith and accessible to both and to be argued out in the future. So the structures are all for arguments to take place in a reasonable way so that these children of the Enlightenment and children of evangelicals can build nation together. And uh, clearly, they said, though, behind the scenes, if the church is not doing its job, this thing's falling apart. If we're not making disciples, this is impossible. And then furthermore, Jefferson made it clear that you have to have an educated citizenry. So the church has got to educate, just like we do in every area of ethics, marriage and family, and how to run your business you know, ethically and all that. Same thing with politics. The church needs to teach. How do you, what are biblical principles of governance that apply? I mean, one German historian once said, John Calvin was the virtual founder of America. <laughs> and the reason is that Calvin began to do in Geneva, just began to do there, radically, what later became the American enterprise. Uh, it was taking Calvinistic Presbyterian concepts and putting them into public government. So, you know, I can't imagine someone who understands Presbyterian evangelical history suggesting that we not be engaged in politics. <laughs> yes. The Prime Minister of England in 1776, speaking to Parliament, here's what he said. Cousin America has run off with a Presbyterian parson. <laughs> and he was talking about John Witherspoon. So those of us with this heritage, this Reformed heritage, we know, of course, we're involved in politics. But we must do it carefully and not mix uh, the agendas or not confuse the agendas, I should say of the kingdom of God and making disciples with the temporary governance with which we, we live. I want to pick up on one thing you mentioned uh, when you were uh, explaining the, the partnership between children of the Enlightenment and evangelicals. You said that um, if the church doesn't do its job, then that whole vision falls apart. It does. 
you know, one thread that we have been kind of been running through each of these conversations and equipping the saints is uh, that passage from Jeremiah 29, which you actually referenced yesterday, uh, where we're called to seek the peace of the city. And so uh, I, I guess my next question really is, how, does, how do we, when we learn to engage graciously and redemptively, how is that actually a ministry to our city? And even if, uh, if you're able or would like to be specific to Memphis. Yeah, I would say, speaking of the political realm first, we need people from the churches who are adequately gifted and compelled to do this, to serve in public service. And if you're honest, you're not going to make a lot of money in public service. And, you know, if you're in a culture like East Memphis, our children have an opportunity to make a whole lot more money, generally speaking, than they could make in public service. So sometimes those on the wealthier end of the spectrum don't engage politics because, you know, it's going to hurt your reputation. It's going to hurt your income. You know, there's just a there's a more luxurious way to live life than to do that. Well, same thing with pastoring and same thing with teaching school. And so I want to say to folks of privilege, you've got to think about your mission in life. What are you trying to accomplish? Is it really to make a lot of money, to marry just the right person, to have kids who's, who's got all the right haircuts and go to the right schools and marry the right people, and then you have great-grandchildren and all that? Or is it something bigger than that? And if it is, then I think public service will begin to be more attractive to revived Christians. So the first thing is we, we need to convince good people to, to run for office. I mean, right now, the two leading candidates we've got for presidential nominee possibilities is, I mean, one way to say it is it's embarrassing. I mean, to have two octogenarians who will be in, uh, who could be either one in office. I mean, I'm not an octogenarian yet, but I'm getting there. And I'm telling you, I'm expecting in eight years not to be confident. <laughs> so I'm 72. And so I'm just thinking, is this really the best we can do? And I want to say to evangelicals, where are you on the Supreme Court? Nowhere. If it weren't for the Roman Catholics, we'd be lost on the Supreme Court. Uh, where are the evangelicals in the White House? Where are the evangelicals in the legislature? Uh, we're badly missing. If we claim to be a certain percentage of the country's population, I don't see you represented. And the reason is, this is hard work. And it takes building bridges with people with whom you don't agree. And evangelicals are not known to be really great at that. And we need to get better at it. So since we're talking about politics, I would start there. You know, we've got some people at Second Presbyterian who are serving in public service, who are on school board and city council, and I think we need to continue to pray for them and encourage more to consider that form of service. Um, then secondly, you've got a public school system, which really needs our engagement. And I was so encouraged at the missions conference to hear about Arise to Read. And when my travel schedule settles down, I'm going to arise to help somebody to read. I mean, I was convicted that very morning. And you know what? You say, how do you take 125,000 kids in, in the public school system and how do, you, how do you handle this huge mess? One at a time, that's the answer. So one of you with one of them, and let's get going. And then see if you can convince some other people to do it. 
So if you look at the big public institution where most of our population goes through, it's the school system, public school system. And so, I'm, you know, my kids, have they've gone to private schools most of their career. That's fine. People make those choices. But I'm not ignoring the public school system where over 100,000 kids need to be taught how to read and how, how to conduct themselves. So I would say politics and the school system. Then there are other forms of shalom, for example, in the business realm, where in most of the neighborhoods, you know, we have 126 neighborhoods, and only 11% of our population lives in neighborhoods of choice. So you've got 89% of the Memphis population living in neighborhoods that are defective. And one way in which the most distressed neighborhoods are defective are in locally owned businesses. They don't have them. And in order to promote the welfare of the local community, you have to have local people investing in local businesses that local people patronize. And so there are things that our successful businesswomen and businessmen can do to help partner with people who want to own businesses in under-resourced neighborhoods. We need to do that. And then, of course, you've got medical care. Uh, the Church Health Center does a great job of offering good medical care to working-class poor. But what about the really distressed poor? Well, you have Christ Medical Clinic, and we need to figure out ways that that's going to get more and more in every neighborhood where we have accessible health care. The most important thing is the church. We have churches in those neighborhoods, but they're probably not churches you'd want your grandchildren to attend, to be honest. And so the churches that are healthy need to be looking at what real church resources do under-resourced communities have. And it's slim pickings. So just because there are a lot of churches doesn't mean they're healthy churches. So I would say that's, in terms of church, that's our expertise, is planting churches that are healthy in under-resourced neighborhoods. So I think that's the best thing we can do as a church institution. But as individuals, we can all take the expertise we have as individuals and find ways to make contributions in that realm among under-resourced people in this community. And if there's not an organization for it, start one. You know, for example, a legal defense. If there's not adequate legal defense for under-resourced uh, indicted people, then I say to all of our lawyers, you need to create an organization so that that happens. So what you do is you take what your skill set is and you find ways to be sure that others like you can share your skill set and your resources with people who don't have them. Now that's shalom, and that's neighbor love. So I think that's the big challenge for the church in Memphis, all those things. Yeah, thank you, Sandy. Uh, my last question for you is uh, along those lines of uh, taking the gospel to people who, who don't know Christ, and I'd like to connect that to our discussion of uh, engaging with other people who disagree with us on the opposite end of the spectrum, uh, maybe politically or, or, or what have you. How does it, when, when we do that in a way that is, is kind, when we listen, uh, when we, rather than uh, getting angry, you know, reason with people, how does that open a door for the gospel and how might that advance our evangelism? I think immensely. 
You know, uh, one of the Republican candidates, uh, Chris Christie, you know, he was a Republican governor in a very blue state, New Jersey. And he was asked, you know, how did you pull that off? You know, he got elected twice by overwhelming majorities. It's a very blue state. How did he do this? He said, well, you know, it, it depends on how you deal with people across the aisle. And he, he tells a story of how uh, early on he told his administrative assistant, he said, uh, a, a guy, he said, we're going to drive down to Patterson or wherever the city was, and we're going to see the head of the, uh, of the Builders Union, who's you know, obviously a strong Democrat union-based leader. And, uh, so he, and he said, do you want me to call ahead of time? He said, no, we're just going to go. So they drove two hours to this city, went to the guy's office, and the receptionist said, was he expecting you, Mr. Governor? And the governor said, no, I was just in the area. I thought I'd drop by him. She said, well, let me see if I can find him. And he was in the gym working out. So he comes out with all his gym clothes on, and Chris Christie says, uh, I said to him, I was in the area. I thought I'd just stop by and see you. And the, the union boss said, you weren't in the area. You drove down here to see me. Chris said, you're right, I did. He said, do you have 15 minutes? And the man said, yes. So they went in the boardroom, and Chris Christie looked at him and said, look, do you want to butt heads on the football field playing against each other, or do you want to score touchdowns together? And Chris said the union boss thought for about 10 seconds, and he said, let's score touchdowns. So you notice what he did. He, he disagrees a lot with that union boss. They're in the di different political parties. They have different political worldviews. But he said, where is the overlapping ground that we can work on together? And so the question for us as evangelicals and, and as reformed evangelicals, which is even a tighter circle, when you're talking with someone or you're looking at a problem and thinking about what your assets are, what you want to look for is wh what do we agree on that we can work together on? Now, if you're a Methodist, I'm not going to plant a church with you. We don't have enough agreement to plant a church together. But do we have enough agreement to do evangelism together? Well, if you're an evangelical Methodist, yeah. So we can have an evangelical campaign, an evangelistic campaign that we do together. If you're a Roman Catholic, I'm not going to do evangelism with you because we don't have the same gospel. We, we disagree on what the gospel is. But if you're pro-life, we'll work together on pro-life issues in Memphis. If you're an out-and-out -out pagan, we're not going to be able to do much together, but there are some things we can do together, like maybe racial justice. You know, if you're, a, if you're a progressive liberal and you believe in racial justice, we've got some common ground. And there are a few things we can do. Let's look for that. So it depends upon how you look at a person when you're visiting with them. Are they your opponent or are they your fellow human being with whom you probably have something in common besides the fact you're both created in God's image? You probably have some views you can build on. So it's you, when you're in Christian ministry, you have concentric circles, planting a church, doing evangelism, pro-life issues, moral issues, and then general humanity. You can, and you find partners within each one of those circles. And that's how you collaborate for the well-being of the commonwealth. And I think that's the way our forefathers did it. They built a country with non-Christians. Our Christian forefathers built a country with non-Christians. And they implanted those principles that they thought would allow us to function together well. 
So we have to remember both how the government is structured and how it's supposed to work and also remember who we are. We're the salt and light that John Adams said is necessary for this whole thing to work. So without us, Josh, this is not going to work. We're going to be like every country at each other's throats, and we're going to dissolve. But if, if the salt and light can be renewed and revived and then know what its mission is, I think we can make a huge difference. And that means we will be kind and gentle and respectful and firm and truthful and honest and committed, all those things together. Well, I would, I would add this too, though, Josh. I've had people from other cities, New Orleans, St. Louis, those that are right on the Mississippi with us, who also have high uh, populations of African-Americans. They typically say to me, you all are having far more meaningful conversations in Memphis than we have in St. Louis or we have in New Orleans. Hmm. And the same would be true in Detroit uh, or Chicago. And I think the reason for that is it's the African-American church and the white evangelical church have learned through the centuries that we need each other and that we're family. So I would say positively, uh, I mean, look, look at when the George Floyd uh, tragedy occurred, a lot of cities went up in flames, not Memphis. Now, we stopped traffic on I-40 for a while, but we didn't burn anything down. And I think the reason is you've got some Christian leaders. That's really what it is. It's the Christian leaders who actually talk to each other. So there's a lot good going on in Memphis. I've always said one thing I appreciate about Memphis is that Memphis proper is dominantly African-American, which means that we get honest dialogue. Our African-Americans don't hide what they're thinking. They come out with it because they're in the majority. In other places, they fear reprisals of one sort or another, and they talk among themselves, but they don't necessarily bring it out in the open. But in Memphis, we get it out, and it's much, much healthier. So with all of our problems, uh, I, of course, I have so many African-American friends that I love and cherish, but beyond that, uh, I, I cherish the dialogue that we have. I think it's more honest and more loving than most places could say they experience. It's encouraging to hear. Sandy, thank you so much for giving us some of your time. You've been ministering to us all day yesterday and now today. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Josh. Great to be with you and great to be with our audience. I want to thank you for joining us again, for equipping the saints. Um, our, our heart and our, uh, our goal is to, to help you as you are wrestling with these different realities that we face as Christians to just as we've been saying, engage in a way that's, that's gracious, that's redemptive. Uh, we'll continue to produce some of these articles that, that take various ethical issues that you'll be hearing about in the public discourse uh, and, and giving you examples of, of how we apply Scripture in the way to your manners of the law. So please be on the lookout for those. Thanks so much for joining.